attention I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Drayton Bird, a man who could fill the British Library twice over with his stories of mayhem and misadventure. Drayton is one of the all-time greats in the world of copywriting. He's helped sell everything from Airbus planes to Peppa Pig, worked in 55 countries, been stabbed three times, lived under a false name at least once, and been dubbed the man who knows more about direct marketing than anyone in the world by David Ogilvie. There's no doubt he's earned his multiple lifetime achievement awards. Drayton says, don't try to be clever. Just give every good reason why people should do what you want and overcome every sensible objection they might have. Welcome to the show, Drayton. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Giles. <laughs> right. Qu- seven quickfire questions, Drayton. Beer or wine? Wine. Reading or writing? Reading. Count Dracula or Count Kapinski? Kapinski. Donkey Carpaccio or horse in Kazakhstan? Uh, donkey Carpaccio. <laughs> uh, be original or steel? Steel. Uh, right. Two more. The best David. David Abbott or David Ogilvy? David Ogilvy. Um, and the last one, it's a, it's a Caples versus Ogilvy here. So they laughed when I sat down at the piano, but when I started to play, or at 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise in this new Rolls Royce comes from the electric clock. They laughed. They laughed. Brilliant. Uh, Drayton, you sailed through those. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. On Call to Action, we like to celebrate the linear and more often not so linear paths that guests have taken to get where they are. And you've been writing for a living for over 60 years now, worked with so many of the world's greatest brands and and, and lived a life that you describe as 85 years as of Sunday, happy birthday, of misadventure, mayhem and millions. But before all that, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper copywriting job? I uh, got a scholarship to Manchester University and I found it incredibly boring. And during the Spanish oral, at the end of the first year, uh, the lady said, ¿Cómo le gusta la, la universidad? And I said, no me gusta mucho. <laughs> and she said, she was quite surprised. And she said, well, oh, what, what are you going to do? Why? And I said, well, it's less interesting than my father's pub. And I'm going to be a writer. And she said, you're going to be, a... I said, I'm going to leave. <laughs> I'm going to be a writer. And she said, when are you going to leave? And I said, now. <laughs> and I left. And, and then I tried to get a job as a writer. And it took me a couple of months. And I got a job for a magazine that doesn't exist anymore now called Cotton. Because that was the, in those days, it was a big cotton industry where I was, which was Manchester. And I used to write the editorials. I was like 19, 19 coming up to 20. 
<laughs> and I used to lecture the American Secretary of State for Agriculture on where he was going wrong. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'd, I'd also discovered, this was the time when sex was first discovered, um, but, but contraception wasn't discovered by me. But I ended up with a young family. And a friend of mine, a very well-connected man, belonged to what was then known as the Princess Margaret set, uh, said, uh, you do well in advertising. I had no idea what advertising was. So I went to the Manchester Public Library and I got out all the books in advertising, both of them, and I read one of them, part of one of them. I didn't read the other one because it was rubbish. And the one I read was all about copywriting and I... I loved the idea of writing and I loved the idea of persuading people. And that's how I decided I want to be a copywriter. And then I got, I joined a course and at the end of the first term, because at that time I was living in a two up and two down house in Manchester, uh, the only one in the row with a bath. Um, and uh, I, I was desperate and I went to the, the, the guy who was teaching us and he, I said, you know, I said, I'm desperate. I need, I must get a job, you know. Uh, and he said, oh, I can't help you, but I'll send you to someone who can. And he sent me to the guy, the advertising manager of the co-op who ran the Manchester Publicity Association. And he interviewed me and I, I judiciously lied, misrepresented and flattered. And he got me an interview with a, uh, an agency in Liverpool. And I went there and uh, the guy who interviewed me said, look, we don't take on copywriters. You know, you have to go through the ranks. And I said, well, I'm desperate and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, why should I hire you? I mean, what, what can you do? I mean, and I said, well, I know a lot about people and I think um, understanding people is, is the key. And he said, why do you say you know a lot about people? I said, because I was brought up in a pub and you see people at their best and worst. Mm. And then he said, um, mm, what other reason should I give you a job? I said, because I can write. And he said, really? Um, and I said, yeah. I said, here's some of the stuff I've written for Cotton Magazine. And he looked at it and he said, mm, sure you can. And then he said, well, what other reason? He said, well, I think, oh, no. so I said, well, I think to be a copywriter, you've got to have a fund of knowledge about all sorts of things. You've got to be incessantly curious. <clears throat> and uh, he said, oh, really? He said, can you tell me the difference between the way a two-stroke engine works and a four-stroke engine works? Now, I can't even bloody drive. I could, to this day, I cannot <laughs> drive a car. But I did, by chance, happen to know the answer to that question. And he said, oh, we'll give you a try. He said, um, how much are you getting paid? And I said, £6.13 and sevenpence after tax a week. That's, that's, this is, now you know what's happened to money. And he said, oh, we'll, we'll pay you that. And I said, but I've got to come from Ashton on the line on the other side of Manchester here to Liverpool. And he said, all right, we'll give you £2 extra. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I started. It's a, it's a good point, you, you, your initial response to him about you know people from being brought up in a pub. Funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, we had the pleasure of talking to one of your, I, I suppose, most famous students, if that's the right word, Steve Harrison. And he mentioned a similar point about growing up in Blackpool, which taught him everything he needed to know about people by the time he was 16. But after 16, there's nothing left to, to learn. It's well, it's, it's well, I don't know whether I, I don't agree with it. There's nothing left to learn after 16, but maybe Steve's smarter than me, <laughs> quite possibly, actually. 
He's a very clever man. Very. I, he. He. Um, there are two people I discovered that um, I think are very good, um, and he's one. And he. He was working in. We had a little library in uh, at Ogilvy and Mather Dirac, which I ran in London, and then helped to run around the world. And he was sitting there, and I said, "Oh." And I. I used to manage by walking around. I. I, I had no office. Um, <laughs> Actually, David Ogilvy came in once after we'd sold the business to him, and he said, he said, Drayton, he said, what do you actually do? He said, you're not the managing director, you're not the chairman, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm in charge of entertainment, David. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, it's my job to make sure people arrive early, leave late, and enjoy the intervening period as much as possible. <laughs> I used to walk around with a leopard skin hat on and all sorts of things to keep people entertained. But... Um, Yes, he, he, so he wasn't really all that happy, Steve. And I said, what would you really like to do? And he said, well, I'd like to be right. And I said, oh, well, I'll get a, I'll get a range to get a brief for you. And that's how I started writing copy. Very, very able uh, man and extremely eccentric. I recommend eccentricity to everyone. Uh, if you're like everyone else, you're never likely to come up with that different ideas to everyone else. In, that, in which case you're not likely to succeed. So I do recommend Very being true. a bit strange. But, uh, was there much eccentricity in the agency in Liverpool then, so that first start that you had? Um, was there? Uh, there wasn't really. It was a successful agency, but nothing remarkable. Uh, what was good about it and what, what uh, was good fortune for me was that the first jobs I had there was no idea about this above the line and below the line, blah, 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 you know. The only thing that matters in our business is can you persuade people to do what you want them to do? And so the first three jobs I had, as I recall, uh, one was to write copy about some restaurants around Liverpool. And because my parents had a restaurant, I knew a lot about that. And one was to write what's known as a a salesman's organiser, and that was a, like a crib sheet that the salesmen carry around when they were doing a pitch to their prospects. And that was for Richmond pork sausages. And the third thing was to write a brochure about seed cleaning machinery. And so by good fortune, I fell immediately into a condition where you were expected to write about anything and you were expected to be able to tackle any marketing challenge so i was uh, i do think good fortune helps and that was, that was good fortune for me i had a, a chap who taught me called hugh edwards i think hugh hugh evans lovely man uh, he was good uh, they had a library there I don't, how many agencies have libraries now i mean half the people in advertising haven't read a bloody book about copywriting they sort of they think it's something you pick up like diphtheria the the depth of knowledge available then I think was greater than it is now I think and also today uh, marketing is segmented uh, needlessly uh, between online and offline and this and that and the other um, so you get people told that you've got a whole school of people who are only interested in digital marketing mm. this is quite insane the principles do not change no matter what the medium is. You're always trying to persuade people to do what you want them to do, and you should understand all media. 
and you should try and understand everything. One of my joys in my latter years, in my senile years, is if somebody comes along to me and asks me to write a copy about something I've never heard of before, I like to acquire knowledge about things I know nothing about. Uh, if you keep uh, writing about the same things, uh, you'll get a savvy, you know. It limits your capabilities. That's why I think that's why there are very few old copywriters. <laughs> you know, think about it. I'm 300 bloody years old. <laughs> uh, I never expected to, to live to, a, to a, a, a 85 I never expected to live to 75. Actually, I was very lucky to live beyond 18 because the day after my 18th birthday, I was run over by a car uh, and I was uh, expected to die. I'm the first person uh, to recover from a ruptured liver in the north of England. Yeah, I've read that. I've read that. I've also read you've been stabbed three times, so I agree. It's surprising that you're still with us, Drayton. <laughs> well, no, the, the stabbing is different. That's just of um, women provoked beyond the, the, the call of endurance. Um, <laughs> but with bad, uh, bad targeting abilities. <laughs> <laughs> they need digital targeting tools, do they, bollocks? <laughs> um, I, uh, I asked you deliberately in the, in the quickfire questions at the start, reading or writing, and I did it in part knowing that you are a prolific reader, but then you've also kind of reinforced that point and perhaps shared a reason why, which is, 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 is learning about new things or new products that you might be required to sell. So would you say that reading is a, is a fundamental for probably all marketers, but specifically for copywriters? If you can't read, if you can't read, you can't write. Um, I think uh, one of the great problems with most uh, copywriters and most writers anybody trying to do anything actually is uh, a lack of imagination uh, which is caused by a lack of broad uh, knowledge whenever somebody tells me something I'd never heard of before I feel I'm delighted whenever a client comes I think I said before when a client comes along and asks me to sell something I've never heard of before I'm delighted if you for instance if all you do is read about uh, marketing, God help you. Before you read about copywriting, God help you. Uh, if you take somebody like David Ogilvy, um, David was very, very well read. But the other problem, I think, is if you go into the, the advertising, marketing, copywriting business without having done anything else, then your horizons are very narrow indeed. And successful communication comes from uh, producing th something which is relevant but surprising. And the possibility of you coming up with something surprising if you don't know very much is very, very low indeed. Yeah, of course. You can't, uh, I mean, I was quoting, uh, I, I write an email uh, five days a week, and I was quoting Anar and Devon, uh, who, Bevan, who founded the National Health Service. And I was looking for something which relates to me writing some copy about uh, a magazine, which you may have heard of, called The Oldie, which has been described as the best uh, magazine in the English language by an eminent American uh, publisher. And the thing is that unless you read a wide range of things, you know, and pick up odd things along the way, you're just going to sound like everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you. And if, you, if you're not stuffing yourself with knowledge um, it's, it, and about many things, 
you can't i mean nobody would would normally i think say to you you've got to write an email about a magazine what do you think the subject line should be and i don't think many people would say stuff their mouths with gold mm. yeah because not many people know who the bloody hell the Narin Bevan was because people don't read or study. They don't know what he said and they can't link it as I then did in the draft I've, I've written so far to um, COVID. Yeah? So you, what, what keeps people reading is when you say things that are surprising but relevant. And if you don't know a lot, you're not able to come out with anything that's surprising or bloody relevant. Yeah, so you so you spew out the same rubbish as everyone else. And you mentioned Rory, Rory Sutherland, um, and the reason why Rory is uh, remarkable, apart from saying nice things about me occasionally, <laughs> is, is that he's got a very very wide range of knowledge. Um, so he comes up with with ideas that other people don't come up with. If you look at the world in this from from the same direction, with the same perspective, with the same range of knowledge as everyone else, you're going to end up like everyone else. And if you end up like everyone else, quite frankly, you might just as well never have bloody well lived. In other words, the whole point of your existence, if you're like everyone else, is gone. Yeah, you're you're, you're just. You're not, it's impossible for you to leave a mark on the world. And I think that we should try to contribute, shouldn't we? We should try and leave a mark. We should try and do something that will influence other people. And we will only do that if we don't say the same things as everyone else. Yeah, so and I guess um, I was going to ask about your principles for writing, but I think before I ask you to share any more your point there about being relevant but surprising or surprising and relevant is is wonderful clearly very very true and wise and it's similar to um i suppose ogilvy himself said you cannot bore people into buying we had a uh the ceo of sarchi and sarchi richard huntington who i spoke to recently and he i think he he said something along the lines of it's better to be interesting than it is to be right sometimes and of course of course disney famously said i'd rather entertain and hope people learn something than try to educate people and hope they were entertained so i guess that's got to be a first hook hasn't it in terms of how you persuade people yeah if you don't seize people's attention you won't get anywhere um this is your the biggest challenge how can i your two biggest challenges number one how can i get people to pay attention and number two, how can I get people to do something? Uh, most people don't understand the intervening steps, which are pretty much as important. You know, get get, get people's attention, get them interested, uh, get them emotionally, uh, fill them with desire, and convince them that you're not bullshitting them, and then get them to do something. That's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. And you can't possibly do that without knowledge. So how do you do that for, we, I mentioned Airbus planes and, and Peppa Pig, two, two wildly diverse things that you've helped sell. How do you do that for those two examples? Well, it depends what it is. I mean, the, I, the, both those jobs I did years ago when I was living under a false name, I, I, during that period, I owed so much money to the Inland Revenue, I had to, I had to duck and dive. <laughs> you sound like my late dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I 
one of the things I did was I I was a freelance creative director and I was a freelance creative director for for several agencies simultaneously. Um, one of them uh, had the Airbus account, and uh, so the first thing I wanted to know was what was different about the Airbus. That's the way you start. Yeah? What was different about this? You, you, you must start by asking what's different about this because. Uh, what you're trying to do is make people choose and choose you. And they, you can't do that until you can define what makes you different, which is the reason why people will choose you. Well, the thing that was different about the Airbus was that it only had two engines, where all the other planes at that time had four engines. So being ignorant, <laughs> how come it can fly with only two engines? And, that, and I had no recollection at all of what I wrote. But I know that's where it started. So it always starts by, well, Dr. Johnson, who's one of my favourite writers of all time, uh, once said, uh, curiosity is not the mode of conversation amongst gentlemen. And I think in one of my books, I think Common Sense, Direct and Digital Marketing, I say it may not be the mode of conversation amongst gentlemen, but it is amongst copywriters. <laughs> David said that you've got to be insatiably curious. This is one of the, the, the criteria whereby he judged the likelihood that you could become a good copywriter. Curiosity. I can't remember a damn thing about the um, the other the 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 the, the um, Little little animal. Oh, Peppa Pig. Mm. Yeah, Peppa. Except I love Peppa Pig. I love. I absolutely adore all things childish, and I I live here and I have with with um, a former business partner. With my, well, my private life is really bizarre. But um, one of the people I live with is a, a four year old little girl, and. Uh, I learn a lot from her because she's always asking me to do the most. She's got a totally different perspective on life. Yeah. See, children don't have any um, filters that say you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. So we spend a lot of time playing mummy and daddy, except that very often, or mummy and daddy and baby, very often I'm the baby, not the mummy or the daddy. <laughs> and very often I'm a, I could be different animals. I could be a pig, you know, I could be... All sorts of things, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you don't even know. Well, I, I mentioned before before we started recording about my my two uh, daughters who are who are five and four years old respectively. And funny enough, I I I, I was honoured to provide an interview for a new magazine that's launched. It's a brilliant magazine called Freelance uh, Freelancer Magazine. And I made the same point as what inspires me if inspire isn't too strong a word and it was my two girls because as you say they've got no filter and they've no they've got no preconceived ideas of how things should be or that kind of etiquette that people expect people to behave or talk in a certain way and my eldest who I say eldest she's only five she regularly has a go at the sky or the moon if it's still in the sky in the morning because it's the sun's turn no that (laughs) makes perfect sense that sounds very, very much like Emma yeah, but I adore it. I adore it. It's brilliant. Well, the thing is that children are creative, and at some point they uh, they start to grow up, which is a big mistake. Big mistake to grow up. I think one should be childish. I think I'll give you an example of uh, my last wife and I. Uh, I was speaking in Cannes, and we had a. This is years ago. We had a very nice red car, a Lotus Esprit Turbo, and we drove to David's 
chateau in um, where we were staying for the weekend. We arrived in the car and David looked at the car and he said, oh, he said, that's beautiful. What's the name of that car I'm in? And my wife said, uh, it's a Lotus Esprit Turbo. And the next day, David said to her, uh, can we go for a drive in your beautiful car? So I said, of course, you know, it's a, not that it was me, because the women always boss me around. Um, so they went to drive into the local into the local town. And at one point, David said to, to Cece, my wife, how do you wind the window down? Where's the window winder? And Cece said, no, no, you just press this button. And she, he said, can you open the window? So he pressed the button. And he looked out of the window and he said, slow down, slow down, slow, very slow. And then he waved in a very lordly fashion towards somebody uh, in the, ta- in the, the town. And then uh, he turned to my wife and he said, that's the local mayor. He hates me. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, uh, David and I had some um, hysterically funny moments. I remember his wife was going away uh, to Paris and... uh, and he said, we're going. And she said, what What? What would you like to eat? Should I get the chef to make something for you to eat? And I said, well, we saw a hare coming, you know, when we were coming here. What, jugged hare? And, and David said, oh, you can't get jugged hare. It's impossible, impossible to get hare. So I said, what about rabbit? And David said, when I was young and we were poor, we had to re- eat rabbit all the time. I Rabbit will never be served in this house. The house being a chateau, you know. <laughs> and so the next day, uh, along came some rabbit. And David looked at me and he said, this is your doing. <laughs> <laughs> Did he eat rabbit? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think he ate it. And, I mean, he, his family was very poor when he was young. And he actually lived near... Uh, my secretary now, unfortunately, no longer with us, a wonderful woman, but they lived near each other. They didn't know each other, but the, when he met her, uh, they they talked about it. That's the other thing about him. People that, uh, um, that succeed uh, start to feel full of themselves. Uh, in that respect, David did not feel full of himself, although he could be an absolute pig. I remember when I went to India, he sent me to India, which he was very fond of, uh, my friend, though, I'm still a friend, um, who was running uh, Ogilvy Direct, and, um, told me about David in a restaurant um, in, in New Delhi, where we were eating, actually, when he told me about it. And um, David had gone there, and the chef had discovered that David, of course, had been a chef when he was younger. And so the chef was very interested and came and hovered and asked him what he would like to eat. And David said cornflakes, because he could be an absolute shit, you know. He, he really could, and I, he was never. He was only rude once to me when I was too loud at breakfast. But I was very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, that's uh, all gossip. Yeah. What else would you like to me to gossip about? <laughs> I'd like you to gossip about business, and particularly business baloney, because. I've heard you say that business seemed fairly simple when you began, uh, despite obviously a slight detour of living under a false name for several several years. But what what do you think has changed? Has business become a bit more of an exercise in waffle and irrelevance? Is there the same level of bullshit around nowadays there always was, or has that got worse? I think there's there's more. Um, 
of course, the old men, you know, always moan about everything, so I'm probably talking nonsense. But uh, somebody who works with me uh, sent out an email uh, describing uh, themselves as a chief operating officer. And I dropped a line this morning. I said, please don't use that, express, that phrase, uh, that title, unless you're planning to join the National Health Service. Um, I think there's so much uh, inflated drivel floating around to a greater... I mean, of course, our business is the art of exaggeration, um, you know, painting things in bright colours. But I do think that people have become incredibly self-important um, needlessly and foolishly. You quoted um, the the chap, the very funny, Bob Hoffman. Yes. Uh, he's a good chap because he, he, he doesn't put up with all that piffle. He, he, he you know, he blows the people up. Icarus is, uh, you know, was must have been uh, told uh, 3,000 years ago, 3,000 or four years um, this thing about somebody flying too close to the sun, somebody, it's really a, part, a sort of uh, a way of describing people feeling that they were better than they were. You know, people tend to feel better than they were. The only conclusion I can come to about my own self is that I'm not nearly as good as some people tell me I am. Because <laughs> I, 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 almost every time I'm given anything uh, significant to write, I'm filled with panic and misery. Yes. Um, and I'm convinced that I'll never come up with another idea and that if I do, it won't work and so on and so on. Um, I recommend despair as the route to success. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask that actually. Are you recommending despair? Is that panic and misery? I suppose combined with that obsessive curiosity, presumably that's how you've managed to put so much into copywriting for so long. Yeah, fear of failure up to me is the. Is the uh, I, I I have two sayings. One is that the road to success lies through failure, and the and the other one is the road to failure lies through success. The minute you start thinking you're doing well, you're going to get get slap happy, you know. That's exactly what happened about, what's the time now? About 45, 50 minutes ago, Drayton, um, I said to my wife, Christ, I feel, I feel really underprepared for today's podcast recording with Drayton because I have got a stack, a wad of research here that I've been obsessively reading through but there's so much. And she just said, yeah, but you feel like that every time you talk to someone you admire. And I think the truth, I think there's a truth there, which is if I had said to her, oh, I feel really prepared, <laughs> then it would, I'd have, it would have been completely wrong. Maybe there's a parallel there. No, I totally agree. I think a sense of, of inadequacy. There's a good story about, um, which is relevant to the art of coming up with ideas, about Beethoven and... and uh, I think Schubert walking along the street one day uh, in Austria, somewhere I've been to, but I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> um, and they heard somebody playing Mozart on the piano uh, above them, from a, a house above them. And Beethoven uh, turned to Schubert and said, you and I will never write anything as good as that. And that's the right approach. If you've got that sort of approach, then you've got some chance of writing something that's any good. I find it incredibly hard to find anything that I've ever done that was any good. 
And when I do briefly think it's it was any good, I look at it and realise I, well, I should have done so and so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's it's um, definitely this feeling that you're not good enough as a you're going to try harder. I think some people have coined it uh, the is it the, the Dunning Kruger effect where the there's that inverse proportion between that self-inflated confidence and um, superiority is often inversely uh, proportion to proportional to your actual talent and it's why it's why I think lots of people suffer what's known as imposter syndrome where they just think they find themselves in the wrong job and they don't really know what they're doing and they panic and they're often the people that are actually very smart and capable but it's that panic and panic and misery I think you said <laughs> you said earlier which I loved I want one last point on the um, business baloney and bullshit and you're, and you're right to point to Bob Hoffman who I often refer to as a, an American bulldog because I think he's great at calling it out I have found myself I've ranted about bullshit in the industry for this is our 70th episode so I'm mindful of doing that too much the, the way I try and justify it or I'm, I'm maybe I find it quite difficult to know what side of the fence I'm on is that on one side of the fence you've got people who you said you use the example chief operating officer I would suggest it's much worse you've got people calling themselves growth gurus and marketing wizards and all sorts of complete <laughs> nonsense but then on the other side I remember uh, Mark Ritson making the point in one of his classes I was in which is yes but marketing is a blood sport so if the wizards and gurus are succeeding and earning more money how can you fault them and and that that actually knocked me for six because I suddenly thought actually that's a really good point. If all of the the bullshit peddlers out there are enjoying success, whatever however we define success, then then maybe maybe there's room for it. But I've never really I've never found that a comfortable conclusion. Competence is all we aim for. Um, Mark Ritson actually, I've never met him. He 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 wrote about oh. A couple of years ago, he said I was one of the only three people he followed, but he never answers any messages from me. So I'm, I'm impressed by his ability to talk, but less impressed by his ability to do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All and I once wrote to him years ago. I said, oh, oh, you're teaching people all about marketing. Can you tell me about the products that you sold? Never got a reply. Those who can do teach, those who cannot. Those who can do, do those who cannot teach. Yeah, and those who cannot do, teach PE or gym. That's a quote from the School of Rock. I mean, I must say, I think Mark Ritson does say he's very, very, he's very perceptive, very intelligent, very, and he's got, he is a very, a good example of somebody who does know how to to grab people's attention. He's he's a good, he's a master of the outrageous. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, um, you know, listeners to this podcast will know I'm a huge fan of his and I've done both of his um, mini MBA classes. But one of the main reasons I admire him for what he does is he's not only a, uh, a teacher of sorts, but he actually practices what he teaches. So I think he splits his time roughly 50-50 between it being a marketing consultant slash practitioner, whatever title he might give himself and teaching. Um, and I, I, funnily enough, I've got two listener questions I'd like to put to you, Drayton, and one of them is about the state of education. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking listeners for questions. So as usual, we've got two. 
starting with Chris from Oxford. Chris asks, despite walking out on a degree at the University of Manchester, you've since lectured there and around the world. What do you think of the state of marketing education and what do you think is the best way to learn? I think the best way to learn is by doing and by reading. It it was an unkind remark of George Bernard Shaw's about those who can do and those who cannot teach, but I think there's a great deal of truth in it. Many, many years ago, I was approached by the Chartered Institute of Marketing um, to run the first ever residential marketing course, uh, regular marketing course, uh, a direct marketing course. Um, And I did it for two years and then I quit. And they said, why are you quitting? I said, because you don't believe in marketing. And they said, what do you mean? I said, because uh, I've been running this course. You've never promoted it. How this people? Do you believe in marketing by osmosis by any chance? Uh, it's certainly true that you know a lot of people who failed or have have come to the end of their useful life, so to speak, uh, will then get a job teaching uh, marketing, and because marketing is a relatively new um, discipline, if you can call it a discipline. Um, you've got a lot of uh, second rate people going around teaching. Um, I mean, I don't think I, I think I'm inadequate, but when I look at some of the other people, I'm, I'm starting to feel vaguely adequate. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you, it, because it's a new discipline. Remember that the first time marketing was written anywhere that I'm aware of was 1904, and there is a fantasy in, in the marketing world that this is a profession. It's not a profession, you know. Medicine is a profession. People have been practicing medicine for what five thousand, six of however long. Um, the same thing with the law, five thousand years before the, since the first legal, you know, set of legal rules or whatever tablets, Hammurabi or someone, marketing nineteen hundred and four. And you think this is a profession, and it's a pro- it's a profession uh, where uh, half the people, most of the people, in fact, don't measure anything. Yeah? And when they do, they measure the wrong things. Um, it's it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Bit of a joke. Yeah. So that's what I think about that. <laughs> yeah. No. I. I yeah. I. I'd, I would struggle very much to disagree with you. Um, I think the. I think learning by doing has always been my preference. Not to say I haven't also sought education, but I've specifically sought education with people who I think are the right types of people to learn from, like Mark Ritson. Um, and, and we, I mean, as an agency, we employ grads and some of them come and, and talk about what they've learned, what they've been studying for three years at university at great cost, I might add. Um, and it's a lot of it is, is baloney, but I think therein lies the problem that your, your marketing education can only really be as good as the person you're learning from. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a problem. You know, ever since, you know, commerce began, um, you, people have had to try and solve things. And what's amazing to me is that most young people nowadays have not read uh, the most important books. Most of them still haven't read scientific advertising, which is not only the most important, but the shortest. I, I once did a, a talk to uh, for some marketing organisation to an audience where a significant number were Ogilvy uh, people, and most of them hadn't read Ogilvy on advertising, rather like being 
I mean, you're going into the church, but you've never come across the Bible, you know. Um, it really is quite extraordinary. Well, especially because the science and marketing is freely available. In fact, I think you link to it on your site, don't you? And it's I remember downloading and printing it, I don't know, a decade ago or however many years ago it was. Well, Ogilvy said that, that but this book changed the course of my life. Actually, one of the things that's driving me bloody barmy at the moment is I'm busy writing a book about Claude Hopkins um, featuring uh, a lot of his advertisements, and he wrote thousands, and it's proving a nightmare challenge um, because he was so good. And, you know, he was being paid uh, um, something like the equivalent of $200,000 a week in today's money (laughs) for what he did. But he this copy built the world's largest advertising agency, launched products that are still around, you know, um, Quaker Oats, uh, a soap, the name of which I can't remember, but still around, Palm Olive. So people don't have, most people in advertising have not read the most important, the shortest <laughs> book uh, about the business. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. It's quite extraordinary. It's like you say, you're going to be, I want to be a composer, but I've never listened to Mozart. I mean, come on. I heard a brilliant retort to, I mean, you, you quite rightly made the point earlier, um, which was great to hear about media. Media differ, but principles don't. And I and I heard a great retort from Tom Goodwin about, this is three or four years ago, but it stuck in my head. And somebody on LinkedIn um, who probably practices a bit of the the marketing baloney and bullshit said, "I'm doing a campaign. What's the best channel to use?" And Tom replied, "I'm writing a song. What's the best note to use?" Very good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, which I liked. Question two, then Drayton. I'm looking forward to this one. Is from Sally, who says, "Your autobiography. You did what?" is overflowing with wild stories from a life well-lived. If you could choose one of your stories to be turned into a movie, which would it be and how can we get it funded? <laughs> Blimey. Uh, it's funny enough, I, somebody, uh, my Italian lady friend of mine said, oh, can I see your autobiography? Which would it be? Oh, my God. Um, very good. I suspect... The thing that would... No, that's a really tricky question. Uh, I've never thought about it. I'm pretty sure, he said, <laughs> off, his, off the cuff, off the nearest convenient cuff, that it would be about the seven years where I lived uh, under an assumed name. I can see that, that that would work. That would actually work quite well. I'll tell, uh, those of you who who don't know this and aren't interested should stop listening. <laughs> the first thing is, that uh, how did I come to start the seven years under a false name? And it was a result of going of my business going bankrupt. And, um, and so it would start with the, the creditors meeting. And what happened at the creditors meeting was that I'd had fully justified messages from people saying that they were going to come and beat the living shit out of me. Um, so I was terrified, and I had lunch before the creditors' meeting with my partner Martin, who's a lovely man who killed himself, uh, not because of me, because um, he went into business with some crooks, the mafia-backed crooks. But um, 
So the creditors meeting, I was expect a guy said, "I'm going to come and break your legs." You know? So I was there, <laughs> terrified. Martin wanted us to leave the country, and I stood up, absolutely terrified. Um, and at the end, essentially, what I said was, "Look, you're all grown up. You know, you all you all knew what you were doing. I'm very sorry about it." Blah blah blah. And the guy who'd come and uh, who'd said I. He broke my legs, came up to me afterwards and said, I'd like to shake your hand. You're obviously an honest man. It's not, not necessarily true. And another man uh, who was a very famous advertising man, John Metcalf, who uh, run two big agencies, very funny man, um, came up to me and, and he shook my hand and he said, you will undoubtedly become a millionaire. Because that was the beginning. Yeah. So that's the terrible situation. And then these people coming up to me and then me doing anything to make a living for seven years and, and under a false name. And wonderful moments. Like I was known as David D. McMahon, which was the... McMahon was the name of my second wife's first husband. And dealing with... We lived in a penthouse in Harley Street. How we afforded it, I don't know. But me going to see the landlord, who was a, a surgeon who lived down the road, and who'd say, well, Mr. McMahon, and I think, who he, who's he talking about? Oh, it's me! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the things that went on during those seven years, and I don't even know if they got it into the autobiography because I, I I wrote that very very quickly, and it probably needs rewriting considerably. And I I remember one day, here's the sort of thing that happened during that period. I used to go to a pub down the road from Harley Street, and I remember meeting. Uh, Bobby Moore, who, who I think did the winning goal in the World Cup or something. And I didn't even know who he was. Uh, but I met some interesting people in that pub. And I went there one day and uh, <laughs> uh, we got drunk at lunchtime. And uh, I used to drink with Bobby Butlin, who was this, the Butlin's holiday camps. And, and we went to his place in the afternoon and drank on, on his rooftop terrace in the sunshine. And then went back to the pub and drank some more, and my then wife, who was a Maori princess, actually, um, it's very sad, she's very ill now, um, uh, towards the end of the evening, there was a girl we were talking to, who said, why don't you come back to my place and have some more drinks? <laughs> <laughs> and my wife said, no, I don't think I'll go. She said, you should go. And of course, I was drunk, and I thought that that was a sort of coded word for you should go and have a, a good time. So I did go and have a good time. But unfortunately, that lady and I were engaged in uh, mutual satisfaction. <laughs> well, my, I'm sorry to speak for myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. And my wife came down, walked down the street in the corner of Harley Street and looked up and saw us uh, in flagrante delicto um, from the street. That didn't help the marriage very much. But that lady that I was with that evening, later on... Um, died tragically she was smoking in bed and um set fire to her, her bedclothes um but that day that was a day the sort of day that i had in the 1970s um full of drama really sad so uh, i remember i i used to go walking the dog in the morning we had a little maltese and uh one day there was a, a very beautiful girl there and uh, she was walking along in bare feet, holding her shoes, wearing a beautiful silk dress. And I said, oh, you look 
pretty chirpy. She said, yeah, I've been gambling all night. I said, did you do well? She said, yeah. And I forgot about her. And then I ran into her. I used to be, a, again, one of my part-time creative directors of an agency down the road. And I used to go at lunchtime and never reappear. I used to go to the pub down the road. And there I met this very same lady. And we became very good friends that afternoon. And I said to her, after I'd seen her two or three times we met her, I said, how come you can afford to to um, to live here off Harley Street? Bloody expensive. She said, well, I've got this old, I won't say what she called him, this old blank who gives me a grand a month, which was a lot of money in the 19, you know, 1973 or whatever it was. And I said, who's that? And she said, here you are, here's one of his cheques. And it was a cheque for a £1,000 a month from the Duke of Devonshire, who happened to be the patient of my old school. Um <laughs> and was also a client of, uh, of the girl I was living with before that who tried to kill me, which was the first one to try and kill me. So there you are. Is that outrageous enough for you? <laughs> yeah, that would do. Well, that seven-year period was interesting because I had to do anything. So I, I sold swimming pools in France and Germany and failed to sell swimming pools in Australia, fake Chagall paintings in Australia. I did anything to make money. Um Many things I was frightened of doing. And you mentioned Kapinski, didn't you? Did you? Are you I said, did in, are the, you in the quick fire. So Kapinski was one of the people I worked for. Count Kapinski is one of the, the great men who rode on horseback and charged the German tanks in 1914. He was, um, I went to work for him and my job was selling. I'm terrified of the telephone. I hate it. So I had to sell malt, malt whiskey for investment on the telephone. I was useless. I admired Kapinski because he could drink like a fish and he was in his 60s. And I once said to him, I said, how come you, you drink like a fish, but you seem to be pretty fit? And he said, well, one day a week I don't drink. And that single piece of information probably saved my life because I was definitely half cut for about 40 years between the 60s and the, the beginning of... Uh, this century. So I could easily make a story, a film out of that period, oddly enough. Easily. Somebody has made a film out of me, of me actually, um, but I've never got around to getting it edited. So Steve Harrison keeps on saying, you should get it edited, but I need somebody cheap who will edit it. <laughs> oh, well, sure, sure, presumably Steve could help you with that because he's done, um, he's done his, his Howard Gossage book, uh, film, hasn't he? I think, yeah, he has. He's he's a very interesting man, Steve. Very, very clever. Um, a fine copywriter. He is, yeah. He He's he's very smart. We were fortunate enough to be invited to his book launch uh, a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. He's a, he was a, he's an interesting bloke, Steve. I think we're, we're supposed to be doing something. I'm thinking of running an event um, Next year, my last final, utterly no more, I guarantee, <laughs> um, um, which has been suggested to me by a friend, an Australian friend, who actually, uh, Trevor Crook, Trevor Toecracker Crook, um, who did come to one of my events and, and joined me. And I'm th- he said, why don't you do another one, do one last one? So I probably will. Hey, wonderful. Um, next year. Well, yeah, the people like them, you know. They like them. They, I, my my secret weapon is a bad sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> if it works, it works.
<laughs> some part works, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, well, the final part then of our interview, uh, Drayton, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Now, starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't be so damned idle. <laughs> Were you idle? I think I'm idle. I know I'm idle compared to uh, the, 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 the lady who's my landlady used to work for me. Um, and she's infinitely more diligent than I am. I'm, t- I'm, a, I'm astonished at her diligence. Astonished at her diligence. I think I'm really idle. And the only thing that's kept me going is that there are a lot of other people who are not only as idle as me, but less well informed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think silly titles would be a good a go for that because it gives people a false sense of competence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, did, I think that anybody who starts to think they're any good is in trouble. I, mean, I realize I've said that different ways. Um, but I remember going back to Ogilvy. Um, my wife and I were having dinner with him and his wife and the husband and wife of an agency that Ogilvy, quite a well-known agency that Ogilvy had bought. I can't remember. Very nice people. But David had to make a speech and... Uh, he was sitting there fiddling with the cutlery, obviously very ill at ease. And I said, I said, everybody here loves you, David. I stopped worrying. And he said, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> He's fear, fear of failure. That's the, the trick, you know. Most powerful thing. Um, any, are there any books that you can recommend? Uh, is question three. Well, I do think anybody who doesn't read Ogilvy and advertising is an idiot. Well, we've already dealt with Claude Hopkins. I do think that anybody who doesn't read John Cables is an idiot. But you've got to be very careful if you get the last edition of his, his best book because it was edited by somebody who knew nothing about direct response. And so it has some examples which are misleading. But, yeah, though you've got to read those books. You're quite mad if you don't. People say, people, uh, my friend, Bob Bly, I've only met once, says that my book, How to Write a a Sales Letter and Emails that Sell, is the best on the subject. And he said, and I've read them all. Um, So that's quite a good book. Um, It's hard for me to tell whether whether a book's any good, you know. Um, Someone else has got to be, to look at it and tell. But Bob's the most knowledgeable person I know in uh, our business, I think. Uh, he does nothing but work, uh, as far as I can make out, which has never been my approach at all. Are there, are there any books outside of industry topics, outside of advertising and copywriting, that you, you would recommend? You talked about reading wildly, uh, widely. For God's sake, there are so many books you've got. You should, you've got to read Dickens, haven't you? You've got to read Evelyn Waugh. When I was 50, my people at Ogilvy bought me a set of the novels of Evelyn Waugh. It's an incredibly funny man. Also, not a nice man, but not many writers are. Uh, I don't think I'm as nice as I would like to think I am. Um, <laughs> Evelyn Waugh. I'll tell you, give you a quote from it, uh, because I was uh, by chance at the weekend um, 
and met somebody very distinguished. I didn't realize he was distinguished at all. Um, but, um, but like most great men, or great men, men of, men of merit, um, uh, he, he was uh, spent some time playing snakes and ladders on the floor with our little girl, he and his wife. Um, and I won't go into details about who he is, but in fact, one of the most distinguished people I've ever met. We were talking about books, you know, and I was, I gave him, I was talking about Evelyn Warner. I said, there's one book that, because he's very, very cultured, he was, he was formerly uh, involved with the royal family. Um, it, his, <laughs> Evelyn Moore wrote this book, which I read, and I've lot, I don't know where it is. I don't, I don't think I bought it. Either. And it was about it, travel. It's not one of his best known, one of his novels. It was all about his, he did a bit of traveling. And apparently he was on this this boat, uh, steam, this sort of cargo boat that took passengers uh, off the coast of um, South Africa, uh, South America. In fact, off the coast of uh, uh, the place where somebody I, I have a daughter with uh, came from, Guyana. And on board this boat, they were they were having. Uh, Races between crabs, and uh, and Evelyn Waugh commented. He said, <clears throat> he said that the chief problem, and I I can't swear this to these exact words, but uh, with crabs as racing animals, is not so much their lack of speed as their poor sense of direction. <laughs> <laughs> I just I think that you know you. I love funny books. Um, I wish I could write a funny book. I wish I could write a decent book. Um, too late now. But I love funny books. I'm looking at my bookshelf now and see there's there's a book, uh, there's a series of diaries by James uh, Lee's Milne, who went around the country before the war, uh, and I think a bit after the war, buying up or doing deals to buy up properties for the National Trust. That's a very, very funny book because he's a really bitchy uh, uh, and I, I think his, his, uh, um, his friendships were unconventional. Um, he's a very, very funny. I love people who are funny. Um, I think life is, uh, life is short. We might as well have a laugh while we can. And God knows if you're in the marketing business, you'll have a few yeah. laughs. Right. You gaze yeah. distraught and disbelieving and think, do these people actually making a living? Are they, do, they, do they get paid for doing this? Do they, does this man really believe what he's just said? But has, he, has he been on the, on the booze for, for three days? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're are. right. So num- number four then, Drayton, is we, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you would you be so kind as to dedicate this episode? Oh, I'd dedicate this episode to, to Marta Caricato. That's spelled C-A-R-I-C-A-T-O, who came uh, to work with me some years ago and has, has done considerably better than I am and is a better person than I am and has been very kind to me. So there you are.
Wonderful. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Marta Caricato, if I've pronounced yep. that correctly. Not Japanese, Italian. <laughs> Italian, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's from Puglia. Ah, of my wife's favourite wine is from Puglia. Really? Nice. Yeah, Which Pilastro. One? It's called Pilastro. Oh, yeah, drunk that. Actually, I've drunk probably everything there is. There's <laughs> none of it left. <laughs> we actually have, I have one, two, three, we now have three, four people from Puglia in the, in the, in the house and one little girl who's half from Puglia. <laughs> You've got four and a half in the house. Amazing. Yeah. We will list everything we've discussed uh, in this episode uh, online. We'll include all of your books, Drayton. We'll include um, some Evelyn War. John Caples, the Claude Hopkins. In fact, I'll link to your site where you share the, a PDF of the book. Ogilvy on advertising. Um, if that's not enough, how else can people listening get more Drayton Bird? Uh, well, I think most people have been listening about more than enough Drayton Bird. <laughs> well, if you go to draytonbird.com, um, that's where you'll find uh, fraudulent misrepresentations about me. <laughs> And you'll also find that uh, if you go to the top right, you can get uh, a copy of Scientific Advertising, which is very short. It's only 43 pages long, I think. Depends on the edition, but um, very short, full of wisdom. And uh, you can also get, you can sign on to my mailing list. So this is a decision you may regret for the rest of your life. <laughs> And I'll start sending you helpful ideas, but people seem to like, people do like them. You know, there are people uh, who start uh, start these things are not very persistent or whatever they've started is not very good. The, the average continuity offering, I, the last time I, I read any statistics, people kept going for four months before on average they dropped off. <clears throat> Um, I, the thing that I run is it's a thing called Ask Drayton, which answers lots of questions. Um, and the average length of stay on that particular continuity deal is about 10 months, so it's quite good. Uh, and what's more, what's even better is you could try it for a dollar and you can even get your dollar back if you don't like it. <laughs> um, so that's quite good. That's that that actually contains. Pretty much everything I know about marketing, and people do like it. They do. They they they. They're either very either they like it or they're very persistent. Yeah. They've got extremely <laughs> bad memories. Straight and bad. Who's that? Last week in the pub, on that. Amazing. Okay, well, we will include links to your site and also to where they can sign up for the mailing list. Fantastic. Uh, Drayton, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been a real privilege to talk. Oh, a pleasure. It's always a pleasure afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a misery before. Yeah. There's that word again. Uh, and finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. We massively value support keep questions and guest requests coming in to get in touch it's easy to find gasp online you can check out cta pod on instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co i
station But I try And I try And I try And I try Yeah!